to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. It's Turkey Weekend. Yes, that's right. Uh, in, in Canada. Yes. Yeah. It'll all be over by the time you hear this, dear listener, but... Uh, and we will be looking like um, that grape girl from Willy Wonka, because we'll be just so stuffed. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you know, there's there's pros and cons to everything. <laughs> but yeah, this is the Thanksgiving weekend uh, in Canada, where it comes before Halloween mm-hmm. instead of after, as in the States. Because everything's backwards in the States. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching the third entry in the Paula Dupree series that started with Captive Wild Woman and continued with Jungle Woman Ooh. and continues to continue despite <laughs> the fact that... Um, I don't think they were profitable. Pa- I don't think they made any money. <laughs> they weren't good. Well, they might have been profitable since the first one managed to be like 50% stock footage and the second one managed to be like 30% stock footage. So you know they weren't spending money. But the thing that's really flabbergasting to me about their continued continuation, not that it's really all that out of the ordinary for Universal Pictures, is the fact that Paula Dupree has died at the end of every movie so far. That has never stopped Universal. Mm-hmm. We know this. <laughs> what else happens in the earlier movies for our listeners who might not remember the cinematic glories of Paula Dupree. (laughs) Oh my god. So the first one, Captive Wild Woman, came out in 1943 and was directed by Edward Dimitrik. It stars the... stars is a strong word. Um, It includes... it features... Mm, There we go. The racially ambiguous Aquanetta Mm -hmm. as Paula Dupree, who is an ape-turned-lady, later turned back to ape, uh, thanks to estrogen injections and a brain transplant from a lady. That's right. Yeah. Um, as Ben kind of alluded to, half of it is stock footage from a circus movie, and then the other half is horror, mainly thanks to our mad scientist in the film, John Carradine. And that was our first John Carradine movie, right? Yeah. He had done movies before then, though, right? It was oh, yeah, his yeah, first yeah, horror, yeah. Yes, actually. his first horror movie, right. yes. Right. So, in the movie, this circus lion tamer named Mason um, has just captured this, like, very intelligent ape from Africa and has brought it back to the States for the circus. Um, Now, he really wants to be a lion and tiger tamer. Like, that is, like, his goal in life. So that's his side of the plot. Meanwhile, um, his fiancée, Evelyn Anchors... Uh, has a sister who is having, like, female troubles in the sense of, like, something to do with estrogen and ovaries. Mm -hmm. I'll leave it at that. Evelyn Anchors takes her sister to... I forget her character's name. Mm -hmm. Evelyn Anchors takes her sister to see uh, John Carradine, and this is how John Carradine gets access to, like, excess estrogen levels, basically. He's one of those glands scientists that pops up so often in these movies. Yeah. 
Long story short, John Carradine kidnaps this very intelligent ape, um, turns it into Paula Dupree, a mute lady, and reintroduces her into the circus society to see if, like, she remembers being animalistic. Mm -hmm. Um, It ends with Paula turning back into an ape due to being horny. (laughs) Her animalistic side reasserts itself. Exactly. The beast flesh creeps back. So Paula as an ape gets shot after saving handler Mason from lions, because he's not good at being a lion tamer. She also rescues Evelyn Anchors and sister by killing John Carradine. Off screen, but yes. Yeah. So we covered this film in episode 106, and it's currently ranked at number 43. And you might be thinking to yourself, 43? That's pretty high up on this list. And let me tell you, listener, yes, but John Carradine really brings the spookums. So that's how good of an actor John Carradine is, because the rest of the film is pretty bad. Yeah. The following year, 1944, came Jungle Woman, episode one that we covered in episode 118, directed by Reginald LeBorg. So as Ben also kind of alluded to, the first film has about 50% stock footage from circus films. Um, Jungle Woman has about 30% of stock footage from Captive Wild Woman. And like Um, 50% of that 30% is still the stock footage from the old circus (laughs) movies. So in Jungle Woman, it turns out Paula didn't fully die, and she was resuscitated by Dr. Fletcher, who was played by J. Carol Nash. I'm not quite dead. God. I got better. Paula is like full lady. Well, like appears full lady. Um... No explanation as to that, because she died as an ape. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Fletcher's having a real hard time working with her because she's nonverbal. But suddenly she becomes verbal around the male lead, Bob Whitney, whose fiance is Joan, Dr. Fletcher's daughter. Paula goes on a hunt to basically get rid of her romantic rival, Joan. Now, Dr. Fletcher has kept Paula's origin as an ape person a secret, but it comes out when it's alluded that Paula is turning into an ape when she attacks, we never see that transformation on screen, so it's just hearsay mm-hmm. and should not be admitted in court. Right. Um, but at a coroner's trial. <laughs> yes. So Paula, in the uh, climax of the film, Paula attacks Dr. Fletcher, and he defends himself with um, injecting, like, an aesthetic or something. Yeah, he like he he's got like some sedative or something that he yeah. like ODs her with by by just pumping her full of. Yeah, during the attack, so mm-hmm. he kills Paula. Now the whole movie is a flashback, right? Because our framing narrative is this coroner's inquest. So we already know that Paula's dead at mm-hmm. the beginning, but for the second time, um, this is how we get the stock footage from the previous movie. How we get introduced to Mason and Evelyn Anchors again. And the inquest is all about, is Dr. Fletcher held responsible for killing Paula, his patient? Right, because the the legal question is, if she was a human, he killed his patient. If she was a gorilla, he put down a dangerous animal. Yeah. And so, after telling the whole movie, the coroner who is playing the role of a judge in this inquest is like, you know, this still doesn't answer the question. And Dr. Fletcher's like, so why don't we just take a look at the body? 
And so they do. Mm -hmm. And it's like, ah, okay, you put down a dangerous animal. But we only see, like, Paula's face, Mm -hmm. and it's done up animalistically. It's not like an ape face. It's Aquanetta as Paula with some fur. Yeah, she's she's a were-ape. Yeah. Which brings up that, A, she's now super dead, as she's been killed twice. Right. And B, the first time she died, she was an ape, and when she was resuscitated, she was a woman. Well, I think she gets resuscitated as an ape, and then she, like, bursts through, like, a window and runs off into the forest and then becomes a woman off screen. Yeah. And when she, And when she's an ape, she's also in, like, shadows and off screen as well. But in any case, the second time that she dies, she is half human, half ape. Mm-hmm. As Ben said, a were-ape. Neither full ape nor full woman. Hmm. That's the captivating story behind Jungle Captive. Right. Jungle Woman, we ranked at number 94. Okay. The only redeeming quality of it is we have Paula attacking Joan and Bob. Yeah, his name is actually Bob. Mm -hmm. In a canoe. Yeah. We have our first, like, underwater attack scene. Yes, which we sort of identified as, like, prefiguring your creatures from the Black Lagoon, your Jawses, etc. Because it's, yeah. it's done in very much that style. So I will say the first title is Captive Wild Woman. Mm-hmm. Then we had Jungle Woman. Mm-hmm. And now we have Jungle Captive. Right. And, I mean, we haven't seen this movie. I don't know. I can't speak to its quality. Right. But perhaps the only reason why they ended Paula Dupree's movies after this is because the only other name title option was Wild Jungle. Right, yeah. This series has, you know, somehow limped along for this long, despite starting at a pretty low quality level to begin with. Um, Probably the biggest warning sign to avoid this third entry is that no one in front of the camera or behind the camera has returned from the previous movies. Aquanetta? Yes. What, what are you doing? So Aqu- like, I'm happy that... Sorry, that's not a, what are you doing, as in, like, why aren't you returning? It's, what are you, like, what What did you get besides this? Right. Like, what exciting new opportunities <laughs> facing Aquanetta? So Aquanetta, the sort of poorly treated star of the previous two movies, had left Universal after she grew tired of the roles they were giving her. Yes. And she left to appear in... Tarzan and the Leopard Woman at RKO. So more of a um, side jump than a move ahead. It was the highest budgeted film she ever did in her career. Okay, so maybe not so much a lateral move, but maybe maybe a little bit of a step up. Like Yeah, I think like, she has dialogue and Oh that's you know, good. She's good. like the high priestess of the leopard tribe or something oh, I like that. She would be the leopard woman. I think she is also oh, okay. that, yes. So her replacement in this film is the unambiguously white actress, Vicky Lane. Okay. Born in Dublin in 1926 as Grace Patricia Rose Collin, her family eventually settled in Los Angeles. She appeared in several small and often uncredited roles throughout her teenage years before landing her biggest role, Paula Dupree in Jungle Captive. Her biggest role Of yet? her career. No! Oh, at no. At age 19. Oh, no. At age 18, she had married boxer-turned-actor Tom Neal, star of the cult noir Detour, and seen by us in Bowery at Midnight. 
She divorced him five years later, citing mental and physical cruelty, and considering the sordid way that Neil's future relationships went, which you can hear more about in our Bowery at Midnight episode, you could say that she probably got off lucky, relatively speaking. In 1953, she married big band leader Peter Kendoli and became a lead vocalist for his band, recording three jazz albums, including a solo album, where she was still backed by the Kendoli Orchestra. Good for her. They divorced in 1958, and Lane left Hollywood for Florida, where she passed away in 1983 at age 57. Oh, that's really young. Mm-hmm. Directing Jungle Captive is Harold Young, the editor-turned-director who had helmed The Mummy's Tomb. Uh, That's the sort of slasher flick one, where Karis goes to America accompanied by Turhen Bey. (laughs) So like with The Mummy series, uh, Ben Pivar, the producer of the first two Paula Dupree movies, had jumped ship by this point, leaving the film to prolific serial writer-producer Morgan B. Cox. The script is courtesy of Mummy's Curse writer Dwight V. Babcock, that was the final Mummy movie, as well as Western's veteran M. Coates Webster. Starring as our mad scientist this time around is actor Otto Kruger. Have we? His name is very familiar. Have yes. we seen him? Yes, okay. we have. So Otto Kruger was born in Ohio. In 1885. Despite this very German name. Specifically like Bismarckian German. Yes. Kruger became an actor after initially studying engineering at the University of Michigan. He debuted on Broadway in 1915 and quickly became a matinee idol. His film career really took off in the 1930s as he developed a niche playing charming villains. Where we saw him was as the romantic lead... Jeffrey Garth, way back in 1936's Dracula's Daughter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's near the end of his career? Uh, not actually. Uh, so he was the villain in Alfred Hitchcock's Saboteur in 1942. Uh, had a lot of roles throughout his career. Very prolific. Uh, later in his career, he would appear in films such as High Noon and Magnificent Obsession in the 50s. So... I think this is less of a late career and more of a low point in the career. Mm. The film's romantic lead is played by Phil Brown, who was 29 years old at the time, opposite 22-year-old Amelita Ward. Brown was born in Massachusetts and majored in drama at Stanford University. His first stage roles were with the Group Theater in New York, a very famous um, theatrical company. When the group theater closed down, he and many of the members relocated to L.A., where they founded the Actors Laboratory. The Actors Lab was a theater company and acting school, and was also very politically active. The lab was open to students regardless of race, which they prided themselves upon, but gained them plenty of criticism in Hollywood. Sure. Brown made his way into movies, starting in 1941, But when the Actors Lab came under accusations of communism in the late 1940s, the company was shut down, and by 1952, Brown was blacklisted. Sure. He and his family moved to the UK, where he was able to resume his career. His best-known role to modern audiences came in 1977, when he played Owen Lars, Luke's uncle in Star Wars. Oh, really? Yep. That's cool. He returned to the United States in 1993 
and passed away in his California home in 2006, two months before his 90th birthday. So, that brings us to the last person in the cast who I want to talk about, Rondo Hatton, who makes his first Scream Scene appearance here, but not his last. Okay. Hatton was born in 1894 in Maryland, and his family moved often before eventually settling in Florida. He was voted handsomest boy in his senior year of high school. After graduation, he worked as a journalist for the Tampa Tribune and served in the U.S. Army during the Pancho Villa expedition and in World War I, which was when the symptoms of acromegaly began to develop. Okay. He was discharged due to the illness, which distorted the shape of his head, face, and extremities in a slow but cumulative process. We talked a little bit about acromegaly um, when we did the episode on The Monster Maker, um, because that film was about acromegaly, but acromegaly as a disease is a um, sort of degenerative condition that increases over time. Mm -hmm. So the longer you survive with it, the more pronounced the effects will be. Yeah. So for Rondo, like, not only is this, like, I think in general, um, a disease that affects your appearance can be really devastating to your Mm self-esteem, but going from most handsomest boy Mm -hmm. in high school to this is probably, like, doubly so. Yeah. He continued his journalism career with the Tampa Tribune after being discharged from the Army, and when he was covering the filming of a movie that had come to Tampa, uh, Hatton was noticed by the director and hired for a bit part. Despite some initial reluctance on his part, Hatton was convinced to move to Hollywood, where he made a career playing thugs in bit parts, because the acromegaly kind of tends to give you a bit of like a stereotypical, almost like Neanderthalish appearance that lends itself well to like, oh, that guy's a, a tough or a heavy, you know, he's, he's the gangster's henchman. Yeah, kind of a brute henchman. character. A brute, yeah, exactly. Hatton's big break came when Universal Studios decided to exploit Hatton's ever more disfiguring illness. Likely, some enterprising producer at Universal thought, Golly, we can save so much money if we don't have to pay Jack Pierce anything. Sometimes I hate producers. (laughs) Hatton's first role for Universal was in the Sherlock Holmes film The Pearl of Death as a serial killer called The Creeper. This was followed up by his role in Jungle Captive as Moloch, uh, named for the Canaanite god of child sacrifice. (sighs) I think the full name of his character is Moloch the Brute. Okay. Um, so the is his middle name and Brute's his last name? Assumedly. <laughs> but yeah, so this sort of begins a brief but very well-remembered career for Hatton as a universal horror star. And, you know, you see him referenced a lot in popular culture later by, mostly by, like, boomers who grew up seeing these old movies, uh, you know, on late-night TV kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a, for example, a gangster henchman character in The Rocketeer named Lothar, who uh, looks like Rondo Hatton, and in the movie, they got the actor to just, like, have a bunch of prosthetics to look like Rondo Hatton. So, Jungle Captive was released on June 29th, 1945. It was the final film in the Paula Dupree series, 
which is indicative of how well it was received by audiences and critics. Its sole home video release was in 1998 on VHS, (laughs) and it certainly isn't streaming anywhere. So we're just super lucky that we found a copy. So yeah, if you want to watch along, dig out your old VCR and uh, head on down to the flea market and see (laughs) if you can find a copy for like a dollar. Head on over to eBay, I suppose. Mm. The digital flea market. Right. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Jungle Captive from 1945, directed by Harold Young. See you on the other side, everybody. Scream scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Jungle Captive from 1945, directed by Harold Young. So what did you think of this, Sarah? Uh, super boring. Nothing new. Tiresome. I don't disagree with any of that. Okay. But I thought it was much better than what I was expecting. This is about what I expected. Okay. Yeah, this is, this is fine. I will say that the title is is nonsense. Uh, there's no like jungle. There, like there's well, yeah. There's no jungle. There is a captive, but she's not from the jungle. I suppose you could consider Paula a captive as well. But like, she's not a jungle captive anymore. She's no. a morgue captive. I, I should just say the story, huh? Yeah, please just tell us the story. Okay, so Don and Anne are young assistants for Mr. Stendhal, who is a biochemist and seems like his day job is just like running lab tests for people, but on the side, he does experiments bringing animals back to life with electricity and blood transfusions. Notice that it's Mr. Stendhal. Yes. Now, Don and Anne are engaged, of course, because... Uh, we need that breeding couple. Because if you've watched enough of these movies, you realize that there's a young man, his fiance, and then an older scientist. Those are the three characters, plus one or more monsters. Brad, Janet, Dr. Scott, right. Rocky. Exactly. Yeah, you got it. So, late one night, Moloch, played by Rondo Hatton, breaks into the morgue. And he kills a mortician. And he steals the body of Paula Dupree right from where we last saw it. And then he steals a hearse. And he drives that hearse out into the country, the top of a cliff. And then he ditches that hearse over the side of the cliff and it blows up real good. (laughs) I think that's the first instance of that particular trope in horror. Yeah. But given that it's 1945, that is an established trope in serials, definitely. Oh, for sure. Uh, And then he brings the body to a cabin in the country, which is guarded by some very zealous guard dogs. So the police come looking around Stendhal's lab because a stolen surgical smock from the stolen body ditched hearse crime matches the ones that Stendhal uses in his lab. Uh, Detective Harrigan is leading up the investigation, 
and he's played by Jerome Cohen, who you may recognize as the short-lived Miles Archer from the classic 1941 version of the Maltese Falcon. Now, he seems to suspect Don, because Don is about the same size as a person who would wear this smock, and these smocks match the ones that they use in the lab. I mean, the fact of the matter is that acromegaly makes your extremities, so hands and feet, and head big. Not the things that would actually affect the size of your clothes, although like I would... shoulder width. Yeah. Although I would guess that Rondo Hatton probably has to get his hats made uh, custom. So Stendhal brings Anne to this cabin in the country, which happens to be his cabin, and he brings her there under false pretenses. And once they arrive, it turns out that he needs her blood to transfuse into Paula so that he can use electricity to bring her back to life. After all, the logical step between animal testing and human testing is human-animal hybrid testing. Everybody knows that. Well, it was established in the last movie that a doctor can't be held responsible if their patient... Right. Is an animal. Is an animal. Yeah, if he fucks up on Paula, it's a lot less of a problem than if he fucks up on a human being. Now, granted, they have already killed a mortician to get this far, so Dr. St- Mr. Stendhal's <laughs> um, concepts of, like... Morality, morality and human the value of human life and stuff is is way out the window yeah so they bring paula back to life uh in her ape woman form uh, and this drains a lot of Anne's blood and leaves her very weak basically near comatose on a operating table for the rest of the movie predictably moloch falls in love with Anne in a classic beauty and the beast scenario stendhal then decides that if he makes paula human again, uh, that means that his bringing people back to life procedure works on humans, which isn't how linear time works, but okay. Yeah, and he he's like, I will be the first to prove this, and it's like, but you won't be because Paula has been made into a human lady in the past, I think and what, you know this? I think what he means is he'll be the first to have proved that you can bring a human back to life from the dead, which isn't how that isn't how linear yeah, time yeah, works. Yeah. That's he, you can't. He's like trying to like, like falsify. Yes, exactly. Like trying to like falsify test results. Like she, she's a human and she's back to life. So he has Moloch steal the records of J. Carol Nash and John Carradine's characters from the previous movies, so that he can get the info he needs for the how to make her human again process. Uh, And Moloch also kills J. Carol Nash's character off-camera. Yeah, they couldn't afford J. Carol Nash to come back for a cameo. Yeah. To just be killed. Yeah. Which, like... Honestly, would he want to come back for that? I don't think so. Which, like, if you can't afford J. Carol Nash, like, you're running into some trouble. So, by taking hormones from Anne and putting them into Paula, as you do, Stendhal makes Paula human again. But it seems that the stress of being an ape who was turned into a human, who turned back into an ape, who was then shot dead, who was then brought back to life, who was then made human again, who then turned into, like, an ape woman and then was killed and then brought back to life as an ape woman and now turned human again, has somewhat rendered Paula's brain... Mush. Mush, yeah. So, of course, the next logical step for Doc... 
Mr. Stendhal, is to transplant Anne's brain into Paula. Meanwhile, Detective Hannigan has begun to suspect Stendhal after questioning Dawn and learning what Stendhal's, like, field of research is. Yes. When Moloch comes to Stendhal's lab in the city looking for him, Dawn begins following Moloch when he sees that Moloch is wearing a pin that he gave to Anne. When Dawn gets to the country house, Stendhal and Moloch knock him out, and then they tie him up in a chair so he can watch Stendhal kill his fiance with brain surgery. <laughs> Stone cold. Yeah. Dawn explains to Moloch that Stendhal's procedure will kill Anne, and so, predictably, Moloch turns on Stendhal, who then shoots him dead. But, during that little kerfuffle, Paula has meanwhile reverted to ape-woman form, breaks out of her bonds, and kills Stendhal. Then, she is about to kill Anne, since, as we know, Paula Dupree hates other women. When, <laughs> she has a lot of internalized misogyny. Yes. When Paula is shot, by Detective Harrigan, who found the address of the country cabin on a heat and water bill while searching Stendhal's lab. <laughs> Arrived just in the nick of time. Anne and Don are married, and the LAPD pays for their honeymoon. <laughs> Which is like, damn, son. To Niagara Falls. And that's the end. Yeah. So so let's start with what what's good about this movie, and then we can get into the complaining, Okay. So, first things first, mm. no stock footage this time. Not technically true. We do get a stock image of Paula Dupree from the last movie in ape form on the, like, morgue table. Yes, yes, that's true. But that's, like, not... That's a technicality. Yeah. M this movie isn't filling out its running time with stock footage. Personally, I got a real kick out of Detective Harrigan... Uh, he's kind of a smug son of a bitch, but I like that sometimes. Yeah, he has kind of like a Gomez Adams look. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he, he just, he, his suspicions of Dawn are used to like throw off Stendhal from thinking he suspects Stendhal while still getting a lot of information about Stendhal from questioning Dawn. Like he's, he's, he's very using, competent. Yeah, he's good. The dedication to continuity is far more than I expected. Yeah, I mean, there is impressive continuity with the previous two movies to a degree that is... I mean, you know, the Universal Movie Series have pretty good continuity, but there's stuff from, like, Frankenstein movie to Frankenstein movie or Invisible Man movie to Invisible Man movie where you go, uh, okay. I don't think that's quite how that went. Uh, that, yeah, I mean, or, you know, the mummy movies where it's like, uh, I think that swamp was in Massachusetts. Why are we in <laughs> Louisiana? Um, whereas this movie, like, calls out the names of the previous mad scientists, has, like, their notes and their records, like, accurately represented. Like, this movie does a really good job with continuity. I think it has some effective horror moments. Um, certainly... Rondo Hatton casts a real good shadow on a wall. Yes. Um, and the scene where they bring Anne to the cabin, and, you know, she's been brought there on false pretenses. She thinks they're going out to see another doctor, and it's this other doctor's cabin. Dr. Kentucky? No, Dr. Kellogg. Dr. Kellogg. You know, the guy who doesn't want you to masturbate. Yeah, who invents the cereal, right. so it will just drain all pleasure out of your life. Right. Little did he know, I actually really like Kellogg Flakes. <laughs> yeah, Corn Flakes are fine. 
So they bring Anne out to this cabin, and it kind of slowly sinks in for her, right? It's like, where's Dr. Kellogg? Oh, he's not here. Oh, you have the ape woman on a table. I think I'm going to go. Oh, Moloch's blocking the door. Like, mm-hmm. oh, and then, you know, she's grabbed and screaming and put on the table, and then they they take so much of her blood that she's just kind of left weak for the rest of the movie. And, you know, the idea of kind of being helpless while people are, like, operating on you and doing all these invasive, deadly procedures and so on, I think that has some legit horror value. Yeah, and Emilita Ward does give a very good performance of that whole sequence. Mm -hmm. I, unlike Sarah, I did actually have fun watching this, but I do think it's fun to enjoy for the goofiness. It's a very silly movie. And it's a, this is a movie, I think, where, you know, riffing on it with your friends for fun is, is probably called for. Yeah, I mean, it's not as fun as, like, Double Bat. No. But it's probably more fun than Dracula's daughter? Yes. Paula Dupree actually spends considerable on-screen time as an ape woman looking, like, uglied up, and she gets to kill one dog and one man on-screen. Yeah, she's, like, growling and kind of hunched over and prowling and being animalistic. So that was good. Um, Vicky Lane tries acting, and she achieves an animal look. Right. An animal antics. Right. I mean, they, like, depicted as, like, Paula as woman. Nothing there to act because she's supposed to be, like, mindless. Yes, exactly. like, walking, so that's just whatever. And this is her biggest role. Yep. But yeah, it's a it's a step up from the previous movie, which kept all of Paula's, like, uglier horror monster activities off screen. Well, you know why they did that here, right? She doesn't have a love interest. Sure. Right, she doesn't have to be attractive to anybody. Yeah. Yeah. They do give her a midriff, though. Yes. So, I think the big problem with this movie, and I think you'll agree with me, is that unfortunately, despite these good aspects that I have mentioned... It's like a half hour's worth of story that's been extended to an hour by using a lot of plot cul-de-sacs. Yes. It's not the worst offender that we've seen. No. And as we also kind of mentioned already, like, it's not relying on stock footage to fill out time, so Mm -hmm. there's at least that. But it's just a little tiresome. There's a lot of people driving from one place to another, but also, like, you know, I didn't even mention it in the plot summary because it's this expendable, but, like, there's a whole subplot where, like, Paula escapes and they have to go looking for her and get her back to the lab and so on. But because, like, the way that that subplot goes is Paula escapes, they look for Paula, they find Paula, they bring Paula back to the lab. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't change anything in the story or move anything forward or have any significance it just eats up time yeah and there's a lot of that it's it's what prompts moloch to go to stendhal's office Mm. like public office to look for him to be like hey chick escaped Mm -hmm. um you didn't need that to motivate him going yes you know yeah yeah uh so i think that's the the big big problem here the other thing that i find like very strange with this movie is we've talked about its dedication to continuity. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned that, you know, in the Frankenstein series, they also have a dedication to continuity. Mm-hmm. And we've seen in the Frankenstein franchise how total adherence to continuity 
can add a lot of baggage, mm-hmm. making it difficult to do further films yes. in that franchise. Yes. So it's very counterintuitive to me, then, that they would continue relying on continuity to this extent. Like, in my opinion, wouldn't you learn from those mistakes mm-hmm. of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman? Right. Of the House of Frankenstein? Like, I mean, if they want Paula Dupree to be a monster to the extent that she had an opportunity to to join House of Frankenstein right. in an early draft, like, they shouldn't be super, super dedicated to continuity. That being said, nothing changes in the continuity in this one except another installment of she's brought back to life, turned into a lady, turns back into ape, and killed. Well, and this is the problem with the universal monster movies like writ large yeah, is like, so, you know, I kind of disagree with you about the value of continuity. I like the attention to detail. It's even better than what we see in the Frankenstein movies, but I'm that kind of nerd. You know, I'm the kind of nerd who watches episodes of Star Trek in Stardate order. Like I'm that (laughs) asshole. So like, I like that, but I think the problem that you get And it's the problem with all the Universal movies is Universal wants to do sequels and hasn't figured out how to write a sequel setup. Yes. They treat every movie as if it is potentially the last in the series and then they do another sequel anyways. And so you get really repetitive plots like, you know, for example, in the Frankenstein movies, it takes so long to explain like, okay, Where are we digging Frankenstein up from this time? How are we bringing him back to life this time? He doesn't get brought back to life until, like, the last ten minutes. But every movie follows this pattern of, you know, someone finds him, someone brings him back to life, he rampages for a little bit, the castle blows up, everybody dies again. And, you know, it's the same thing in the Mummy movies. Every Mummy movie has the exact same story with slight variation, right? And, you know, Karis dies at the end of everyone, and then we have to figure out how we bring him back. And this is the problem with the Paula Dupree movies, is when you kill her at the end of everyone, you have to spend at least the first act then bringing her back to life. The thing that makes Lawrence Talbot work is that, you know, we establish really early on in his first movie, like, Moonlight brings him back to life, right? And then his thing is he's just wandering the countryside looking for a cure, right? He's he's Dr. D- Bruce Banner from The Hulk, right? He can go on to sequel after sequel after sequel, right? But the, the thing that you have to do if you're going to do sequels is you have to leave the story open at the end. You know, Nick Fury has to come in and tell you about the Avengers initiative or whatever the fuck, right? Yeah. Like, the problem that <laughs> these Paula Dupree movies have had is she gets fucking shot at the end of everyone, and it's like, well, she's fucking dead. Super dead. Yep. Very dead. Clearly. Yeah. So the only thing that's new in the story this time around is Rondo Hatton. Yeah. Which, like, he's not a trained actor. No. And you can tell. And he's also, the way he's delivering lines, um... Like, he's a writer by trade. I mean, mm-hmm. he's a journalist, so not necessarily fiction writing, but I think he took one look at the script and was like, this is trash, so I'm just going to, like, ad-lib some yeah. of these lines. I'm not even going to memorize these. Like, it doesn't matter. All of his lines get the have the feeling as if, like, he's just learning what happens in the scene now on <laughs> set. He's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Okay, get on my dark coat then. I guess I'm throwing a hearse off the bridge. Oh, you know, and the other thing is, 
as Sarah said, he's not a trained actor. He He's someone who got his career because of you have this unique look. Yeah. Right? And that's going to do all the work we need it to. He's he's from Florida, so he's got this heavy Florida accent. It's thick. Yeah, and then he's got this really raspy voice, which may or may not be like some sort of side effect of the acromegaly. It might also be put on for this movie, because they do talk about trying to identify the mortician's killer through the killer's unique voice. Right. But it is kind of funny, like this heavy Florida accent, because... It does make, like, all of his lines kind of hilarious because you'll have, you know, Mr. Stendhal say something like, you know, we need to make sure that we get the blood transfusion so that we can remove the hormones so that we can transplant the brain. And Mollick coming in being like, so you're going to cut her up, huh? Like, (laughs) (laughs) But not too much, right? Yeah. Um, I actually wish his character hadn't died. Like, they do a lot at the start of the movie to try and set up, like, this dude's a bad dude. You know, he murders people, and he throws hearses off cliffs, and he whips dogs and all of this stuff. But honestly, like, by the end of the movie, I was like, I want this guy to kill Stendhal and get with, you know, Anne, maybe. I don't know. But, like, I just I just wanted him to have a good time. <laughs> no, there's no way he's going to end up with Anne. Like, he... In the opening part of the movie, he kills someone. Yeah. The code's not going to allow him to get no, with Anne. No, no. It's, it's not the right time period for Rondo Hatton to have a movie where he gets to be a hero. Yeah, I will say, so when we were doing the episode on The Monster Maker, episode 116, right. which, where it, it name drops Acromegaly. Yeah, it's a, it's a plot point. Yeah. In that episode, we mentioned notable actors or figures who have... Acromegaly that we would recognize. So, like, Andre the Giant, Tony Robbins, um, the guy who played Jaws in James Bond. Richard Keel. Richard Keel. Now, the thing for me that I know with at least those three examples yeah. is the rest of them is also quite large. Like, mm-hmm. they are broad, like Andre the Giant, you know? Whereas Rondo Hatton, like, it's really just his face that's mm-hmm. being affected at this point. The rest of him is of standard size his hands are a little bit big it's but even like the shoulders being broad when he's standing next to someone he's not like towering over them he's of like average height he's a tall guy but he's not yeah like gigantic yeah so it surprised me because his actual appearance did not meet my preconceptions of what to expect of someone who had acromegaly it did resemble a lot, I think, the makeup job we saw in The Monster Maker. Yes, I would agree um, with that. And so the thing about guys like Richard Keel or Andre the Giant is so gigantism and acromegaly are connected disorders. Okay. So you don't necess- you won't necessarily get acromegaly if you have gigantism, but you are at a much greater risk for acromegaly if you have gigantism. You don't necessarily need to have gigantism to get acromegaly, though. So in a case like Rondo Hatton, he has acromegaly, he doesn't have gigantism. But in cases like Andre or Richard Keel, they had gigantism that then developed into acromegaly. Because the key thing about acromegaly is it does not show in childhood. It only shows up in adulthood. So if you look at, say, young pictures of Andre the Giant, he's just a big dude. He doesn't have the, like, skewed proportions that he later gets in life. That's from the acromegaly. Okay. Yeah. And, like, 
we're going to be, so spoiler alert, we're going to be seeing Rondo Hatton again. And his acromegaly is going to develop, because that's what it does. It, it gets worse over time. Is that all we have to say? Yeah, like, I know that it's a B-movie from a B-movie department. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like an A-movie from the B-movie department. Yeah. Um, but, gosh, I really feel like there's, like, poverty row flicks that have more energy than this. That's the problem, definitely, is, like, the poverty row flicks, the really good ones, your devil bats, your corpse vanishes, there's a feeling of, like, eh, none of this matters, so why not go balls to the wall? Like, yeah, he's he's bringing his wife back to life or whatever, or making her young again by stealing, you know, people's glands. Whole glands. Yeah. Um, and just, like, nutty, nutty things. Whereas, like, this movie plays everything, I mean, very, very safe. You know, as we just said, the only new element in here is Rondo Hatton. Everything else we've seen before, if not in Apollo Dupree movie, like, in dozens of other of these mad scientist movies. I, I, I never want to hear the word glands again, you know, for the rest <laughs> of my life. Um, and so, yeah, you get this, like, tired feeling out of them because nobody's trying to do anything new. Everybody's just trying to do what's been done before. Yeah. So I feel like this is a good transition to talking about where we should rank this. Okay. So where were you looking for Jungle Captive? Like we've said, I'm a little tired of this stuff. This mm-hmm. wasn't bringing anything new um, to Paula Dupree, to Mad Scientist stuff, whatever. So I went to Jungle Woman, right. the last Paula Dupree picture, uh, which is currently ranked at number 94, episode 118, um, because that movie at least brought in that water attack scene. Yeah, there was good directing, I think, in that movie, even if there wasn't necessarily a good script. Yeah, so that was my ceiling. Okay. And then I went down from there, and I went down to The Monster Maker. Right. Which we've that's, talked about. Yeah. So that's ranked at 104. Now, we really criticized Monster Maker for the way it does depict acromegaly. Yes. Which is a real thing, clearly, um, but it, it conflates monstrous appearance with monstrous behavior. Yeah. And that can have a lot of really bad effects mm-hmm. on society. So to me, that sh- that became my floor. Um, but honestly, as I was looking between 94 and 104, um, I kind of settled around the f- bottom of my little area here. So at 102 is Yiban Gisheng, which is uh, Song, Song at, at Midnight, Midnight, which was the uh, Chinese Phantom of the Opera, uh-huh. which had amazing makeup. Um, then there's Return of the Ape Man, which, if you don't remember, uh, is the Caveman one, where they yes, saw they... at the Caveman. Yes. Um, and then Monster Maker, which really just had good makeup, and that was it. So I feel like um, kind of my spot, I guess, for the Jungle Captive is below Sung at Midnight and above Return of the Ape Man. Okay. What I know that that's, that turned into a very specific spot, but uh, where were you thinking? So, I just wanted to say about Monster Maker, like, I totally agree with your point, because Rondo Hatton was already in Hollywood when they made that movie. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so they didn't have to have it be a guy in makeup. Now, granted, this guy, like, gets acromegaly artificially over the course of the movie, so it had to kind of look like him. But the distinction that should be made, because, you know, Rondo Hatton's playing essentially a monstrous character here, too, right? Yeah. But at no point in this movie is his appearance linked to his monstrousness. Like, Moloch's just a murder-happy guy, Whereas Monster Maker, like, explicitly says that acromegaly, like, increases aggression in people, which is nonsense. Yes. So I just wanted to make that clarification. Absolutely. So your kind of ceiling of your range where you started was up at 94? Yes. Which is hilarious because my floor was 93. Oh! So I started by looking at Jungle Woman, the same as you did. And I kind of came to the opposite reaction... I thought this was better than Jungle Woman because it didn't have the stock footage and I felt that its script was better because it wasn't all formatted as a courtroom drama where you knew the ending before the movie even had a chance to get started. Sure. Um, So I actually preferred this to that. Then above Jungle Woman is The Mummy's Curse, the final mummy movie uh, by the same writers as this movie. Right. And that movie sucked. Uh, I didn't like it. It was a fucking mess. So I kind of put my floor at 93, that this could go below the invisible ray above Mummy's Curse. Then I worked my way up, and my ceiling that I hit was uh, number 70, the climax, because I could see how, you know, this movie might be better than schlock, like Voodoo Man or Man Made Monster or Devil Doll, etc. But I think with the points that you made, uh, in terms of your range, I don't know, if your ceiling is 94 and my floor is 93, do you just want to slot it in there, or do you feel strongly about bringing it down? I do feel strongly about bringing it down, because if you think about, like, sure, we rank horror movies, but when we look at these films, we're also looking at, like, what is it doing for the horror genre? What is mm-hmm. it doing for film in general? Like, right. some of the movies on the list do something for the film industry at writ large. Um, Jungle Captive is not doing much of anything. Yeah, I mean, it was released on VHS 20 years ago, and no one's bothered with it since, so... Yeah, whereas, like, like we've, we've kind of said, Jungle Woman has that underwater scene, it has mm-hmm. that stalking through the forest scene, mm-hmm. where, like... Joan, the chick, like, runs and falls with Paula Dupree coming after her. Yes. Sure, it doesn't have, it doesn't have as much teeth because Paula is in, like, lady form, but still, there's those attempts being made. Yeah. So if you look below that, like, at at 97 is Werewolf of London, which, sure, is pretty bad, um, but it's trying to do some stuff with the werewolf story before, like, it was really solidified. Exactly. We have Avenging Conscience, we have The Golem, yeah. um, even The Black Cat, which, like, sure, it has a lot of comedy, but it also was showing a dedication to more, to focusing more on the horror than the comedy elements, mm. while still having to, like, put in the comedy because of, like, who they cast. Okay, so, like, yeah, I totally... these movies are, like, not, like, super great <laughs> in terms of, like, movies or as horror, but they're all doing something that is adding or contributing in some way to horror as a genre. And I don't feel like Jungle Captive is, and so that's why I feel like, you know, putting it below, like, the very 
was this the very first Chinese yes. horror movie? Yeah. Song at Midnight? So that movie, like, was, like, breaking ground. It was also made during, like, war times, mm-hmm. during, like, really crazy political situations, and had very innovative makeup. Yes. Yeah, I think you've, you've talked me into it. Um, I mean, because Return of the Ape Man's just trash. <laughs> it really is. Like, the only good thing about it is... Um, it has John Carradine and Bella Lugosi together, right? Yes, so, like, yeah. they at least get to interact with that. But yeah. other than that, it's not really anything. No. All right, so entering the list at number 103 is The Jungle Captive from 1945, directed by Harold Young. If you would like to see this list of ranked horror films, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to submit an appeal of this or any other ranking, you can submit through our Ask box on Tumblr, or email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Google Play. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed and listen to us through your podcasting app of choice. And we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a rating or a review. That really helps the show out. Other things you can do to help the show out include reblogging our Tumblr posts when they go up, retweeting our tweets when they happen, and liking them. And also heading on over to patreon.com slash podcast. We're doing a lot of exciting stuff for October. It's the spooky season. And so patrons of all levels are getting access to Sarah's serialized audiobook adaptation of Carmilla featuring music and sound effects and spookiness. And, and my voice. Coming up later in the month, we're going to have the pilot episode of our spin-off series, Scream Scene Unsolved, as I discuss the life and death of Vera West, the costume designer for Universal Studios in the golden age of Hollywood. Who also did the costumes for Jungle Captive. Yes. Yeah, she was listed there in the credits. Mm Mm-hmm. And she'll, you watch any Universal movie from this period, you'll see her name. (laughs) And of course, the regular Patreon content for $5 and $10 backers continues as well. If you can't support us on Patreon, we understand, but we would also ask that you tell a friend about the show. Again, it's the spooky season, and so people are looking for suggestions for what movies to watch, what podcasts to listen to. Well, we're a podcast that tells you what movies to watch, so that's two birds with one stone right there. (laughs) Uh, Spread the word. Uh, You know, we... This is our time of year. It's it's our busy season, and uh, it's the time to get you know more ears listening to the show and spread this wonderful thing that we do that yeah. we're very proud of. Yeah, I am very proud of it actually, and it's great because I do it with you. Oh. Yeah. Well, what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week, Sarah, we are headed to Britain, which we haven't been to in a while because they kind of banned horror movies during the war. Yeah. But. The war's over now, so it's time to get to making <laughs> horror movies again, and we're going to be watching... Get back to work, boys. <laughs> Put down your guns, pick up your blood satchels. What are they called? Squibs. Squibs. That sounds... Isn't that the word for, like, someone who comes from, like, two wizard parents but doesn't have magic? Oh, it is a squib. Yeah, you were totally right. That's fucking weird, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> so from the producer 
of The Man Who Changed His Mind comes Dead of Night, which is a horror anthology film. Dead of Night is super influential on future anthology films. For one thing, it's got a different director for each installment, which kind of becomes the standard for that type of movie. And all of the stories that get told in it kind of get retold and stolen and copied throughout horror from this point on. Uh, None more so than the story of the evil ventriloquist dummy. Oh boy. Perfect. Love it. So, join us next week, Creatures of the Night, for Dead of Night. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Bye! Bye!